Uh, Welcome back. We are in Matthew chapter 18 today, a new chapter in this ongoing study of the first of the Gospels. And we will read through the first nine verses today. And um, if we finish up with those first nine verses and still have time left over, don't hold your breath, but in the event that we do, um, I will give you an opportunity if you have any questions, um, because I realize that um, we discussed some rather delicate subjects last week, paying taxes, the Christian's relationship to the state and so forth, and um, I, I hope that generated as much light as it did heat. And um, so if you have any questions, um, perhaps if we have time at the end, I'll give you an opportunity to ask those. But today we want to take a look at these first nine verses of Matthew chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, you open them up and we'll go ahead and read through them. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. As I think about this question posed by the disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? It reminds me of something that William Shakespeare wrote in Twelfth Night, familiar lines probably if you're at all familiar with Shakespeare. He said, be not afraid of greatness. Some men are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And then there were the disciples. These men were not great. They were certainly in the presence of greatness, walking and listening to Jesus, but they were not great. They were not born great. They came from very humble beginnings. They had not achieved greatness, at least not by the standards of the world, and certainly not by this point in their time and their journey with Jesus. And they certainly wouldn't even have greatness thrust upon them. And yet these were men who desperately wanted to be great. They recognized that the fact that the world praises greatness, encourages greatness, and so like the world, they longed to be great. And that was the motivation behind this question as they're walking along with Jesus, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Now, they recognized, on the basis of Jesus' teaching up to this point, that the kingdom was very important. Uh, We've talked about this on many occasions. If you really want to understand Jesus' ministry and what He had come to do in the New Testament, you have to understand this theme of the kingdom of God. It's right there from the beginning, and it's right there at the end. At the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we're told that when Jesus first began to preach, He told the people to repent in chapter 4. Why? Because the kingdom of God had arrived. And even before Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who was paving the way, if you will, for Jesus, had preached the exact same message, that people were to repent because the kingdom of God had arrived. So it was right there at the beginning with John the Baptist, and when Jesus began to preach the message, he was preaching the same message, a message of repentance because the kingdom of God had arrived. You turn a page in your Bible to chapter 5, and you find Jesus talking at great length about the kingdom. That really is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. What does kingdom living in a fallen world really look like? 
And so that's what the Sermon on the Mount is designed to be, a picture of kingdom living in this broken and evil world. Then you get to Matthew chapter 13, about five chapters before where we are, and Jesus begins to introduce his parables. We're told that because of the growing hostility of the Jewish religious leaders and the apathy of the people, Jesus stopped teaching overtly and he began to speak to them in parables. And yet every single one of the parables that you find in Matthew chapter 13 deals with this subject of the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about the parable of the sower, for example, and he says the kingdom of God is like a sower who went out into his field to sow seed. Or he uses the example of the parable of the wheat and the tares and put before them another parable saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Or the parable of the weeds or the parable of the hidden treasure or the parable of the pearl of great value or the parable of the net in which Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. So over and over again, Jesus talked about this theme of the kingdom. And the disciples, even though they were rather slow on the uptake when it came to many of Jesus' teachings, at least understood that this idea of the kingdom was central to what he had come to do, central to his ministry. But the problem for the disciples was that when Jesus spoke about the kingdom, they really didn't understand what he meant by that. For them, the kingdom of God was a physical kingdom. They believed that they were being oppressed, and they were being oppressed by the Romans, and their expectation, and it was the expectation really of most Jews in the first century, was that when Messiah came, when the Anointed One came, the Savior, He was going to save them from the Romans. He was going to drive out the Romans and reestablish the Davidic dynasty, the glory days of Israel. And what is interesting about the disciples is they didn't understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom at this point in their ministry. But they didn't understand it even at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. I mean, you would think that as time went by, they would eventually get it, but they did not. Keep your finger here in Matthew chapter 18 and turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 1 for just a moment. I want to show you something. Now, those of you who've been in the study on Acts, perhaps you remember this, but it's, it's very important. Acts chapter 1 recounts those days and weeks immediately following the resurrection, but before the ascension. So Jesus has been raised from the dead, but He has not yet ascended to the Father, and the Holy Spirit has not yet come. This is Acts 1. The Holy Spirit does not come until Acts chapter 2. So after the resurrection, the disciples begin to see things in an altogether new light. There was much about Jesus and His ministry, much about His death that was mysterious to them. As we've seen already, Jesus had foretold that He was going to go to Jerusalem, He was going to be betrayed at the hands of His own people and ultimately crucified and on the third day rise again. The disciples didn't like it. Peter, of course, had said, God forbid, this must never happen to you. But now, in the wake of the resurrection, they're beginning to understand what Jesus was talking about. They're, they're beginning to understand all of the things that He had taught them. Uh, the resurrection was, if you will, the keystone of the faith, and it was also the lens through which they began to view everything else. But while they began to understand a great deal, there was still one important part of Jesus' ministry and teaching that they still didn't get even in the wake of Easter. And that was the kingdom of God. Take a look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had all come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, it was though they were saying, all right, you came to establish a kingdom. All right, you said you were going to die upon a cross, betrayed at the hands of your own people. You did that. You said that three days later you were going to rise again, and sure enough, you did that. So now having died in accordance with your promise, and having been raised in accordance with your promise, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel in accordance with your promise? Now, what I want you to notice, and this is the critical word, it is the word restore. When you restore something, what are you doing? 
you are bringing back something that once was. So in their minds, what Jesus was really coming to do was to reestablish what had already existed, namely a physical kingdom. And if Jesus was going to establish a physical kingdom, and obviously He can do anything in the wake of the resurrection, if He's going to establish a physical kingdom, well, by golly, He's going to be the king, and they are His disciples, they have followed Him, they've given up everything. Two of them had left their father's Zebedee in the boat. Two of them had left their nets. The rest had left everything else as well. Matthew had left the tax collector's booth. They were all following Jesus. If he's going to be the king, well, they wanted to be close to the king. They were assuming that they were going to have positions of power, and they wanted to know which of them was going to be the greatest. Some men are born to greatness. Some achieve greatness. Some have greatness thrust upon them. Who, Lord, is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Now, what's tragic, and there are a number of things, actually, that are tragic about the question that the disciples posed to the Lord, but one of the things that is particularly tragic about this question is that there is a sense in which Jesus had already answered it. That's what the Sermon on the Mount really was all about. In particular, it's what the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Beatitudes, is really all about. Who's going to be great in the kingdom of God? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. So there is a sense in which Jesus had already explained to them who would be great in the kingdom of God, what the nature of a citizen of the kingdom of God was really like, but still they didn't get it. Now, at this point, you might think that Jesus would get very frustrated with these men. I mean, how long is it going to take? But he doesn't. What we find is that Jesus is very patient with these men, just as he is very patient with us. And because he's been teaching them about the kingdom, he decides to take a slightly different tact. Instead of telling them about the kingdom and what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of God, he decides to show them. You've all heard the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words, and it's absolutely true. Nobody, nobody can describe for you the Grand Canyon if you've never seen it. I think I've told you this before, some years ago, almost 25 years ago now, I took a trip out to the Grand Canyon, and I'll be honest with you, it was just an opportunity that was presented to me. I had a friend who was out there, and I was invited to come out and see the Grand Canyon and hike the Grand Canyon, and so I thought I'd go, but it was not one of those things, to be honest with you, and you're going to think this is terrible, but it was not one of those things that was on my bucket list. I mean, the Grand Canyon, translate big hole. I, I thought to myself, who cares about that? I'm not particularly interested in seeing a big hole. There are a lot of other things that I'd rather see besides the Grand Canyon. But I went out there. I stepped into the visitor center on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, and that whole side of the visitor center is nothing but glass windows, and I'm not kidding you, it took my breath away. I had no idea. And I could have read volumes about it, but seeing it was entirely different. And I'll be honest with you, a photograph does a much better job than the written word. But even a photograph is incapable of doing something like that justice. But I must say that the pictures did it more justice than the words did. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to help the disciples Uh, by doing. He is going to give them a picture rather than simply tell them what the kingdom of God is or what greatness in the kingdom of God is. Jesus is going to give them an object lesson. And that's what he does. Look at verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. The word that is translated here as child would have been basically an infant, a toddler. So we're not not just talking about a a teenager or a preteen here. We're talking about a little child, put a child in the midst of them, and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus is very clear, if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, he says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to become like this little child. Now, This deserves some qualifications. 
When Jesus says we are to become like children, he doesn't mean that we are to become like children in every respect. Because actually, if you look at other portions of Scripture, it becomes very clear that we are not to be like children. There are some things about children that are admirable, and we're going to get to those in a moment, but there are some things about children that are not necessarily admirable. And they're not the sort of things that you and I are to strive for. So what are the things that we are not to be like when it comes to children? Well, first of all, children have a limited knowledge, don't they? There's much that children simply don't understand. There's much about the world that they do not comprehend, that they do not know. And you and I are not supposed to remain ignorant for the rest of our lives of spiritual matters or, for that matter, of secular matters. The Scriptures are very clear. Paul says we are to grow into the full stature of Christ. So children are content to be ignorant, but we cannot, as Christian people, content to be ignorant. That's not what Jesus means when he says we are to become like little children. Nor are we to be like children when it comes to being foolish and easily deceived. You ever notice that children are easily deceived? Now, as they get older, they grow out of that. But when they're very young, I used to be able to play a little magic trick on my kids. It used to just freak them out completely, where I would be able to take a straw and stick it in my ear and pull it out my mouth. And I'm not kidding you, it was the funniest thing because I could keep them absolutely transfixed for hours and they could not figure it out. And I could do that for about the first three years of their life. And then they begin to catch on. But they were easily deceived. And children are easily deceived. But Paul, just one verse later in that same passage from Ephesians, makes it very clear. We are not supposed to be deceived. He says you are not supposed to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. When Jesus says be like a child, that's not what he means. Another thing about children is this. Children have a tendency to lack focus, don't they? Children can concentrate on something for a little bit of time, but then they're easily distracted and they move over to something else. Now, some adults are like that, too. I think technology makes us like that, to be perfectly honest with you. Technology is one of those things that has a tendency to distract us. But Paul says we're not supposed to be like that. Jesus says we're not supposed to be like that. Instead, we are supposed to be a people who dwell on the things that are noble and lovely and pure. We are supposed to develop the ability to concentrate on those things that really matter. So when Jesus says you have to become like a little child, this is not what he means. These are not the admirable qualities of children. But there are some that are admirable, and these are the ones that Jesus is really addressing in this passage. And you have to remember the context. What's admirable about children? Well, one thing is that they have a teachable spirit. You know, that's one of the things, if you've had little children or if you have grandchildren, they are eager for you to teach them how to do something. You know, I remember teaching my children how to tie their shoes. They were fascinated. Teach me how to do that. Teach me how to make my bed. Teach me how to do any number of things. How to play checkers. I taught my kids how to play checkers. And of course I would beat them every time and they'd cry and all that. Now they beat me in checkers. But they were eager to learn. They had a teachable spirit. Oftentimes when we grow up, we don't have a teachable spirit. All of a sudden there comes a point in the life of a child when the words... Show me, become, I'll do it myself. Ever experience that? See, but when they're young, they have that teachable spirit. Listen, you'll never grow in the Christian life if you do not have a teachable spirit. If you think you know it all already, you're already gone. And so children have a teachable spirit. Children are also trusting. They are willing to take you at your word. They're willing to trust you when you tell them something until you've proven yourself untrustworthy. Now, the illustration that I often use for this with my own children is, I'll never forget when my second son was just a a little boy. He was just wee. Uh, He's a college graduate now, but he was just a, a little boy. He must have been about four years old. We were on vacation, and the place where we were staying had a swimming pool which had a high dive. I don't even think they make high dives anymore. They consider them to be unsafe or something like that. But, but in these days, they had the high dives, your know, death trap. 
And they had the high dive there, and all the other kids were growing off, going off, including his big brother, and jumping off this high dive, and he wanted to do it terribly. And I kept saying to him, son, I don't know about that. I don't know. He said, dad, dad, please, please, please let me do it. And Kristen said, well, just get into the, into the deep water and tread water and wait for him and, and, and catch him once he jumps. Well, he gets in line. It was a hot day. There were all these other kids. He gets in line. It becomes his turn. And he gets up there, climbs up the ladder. And all of a sudden, when he looks out, it's a whole different perspective from up there. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it looks a little more terrifying than it did before. And so he walks out to the end of the board, and you can see his little toes just curled over the end, and his lower lip begins to quiver. Meanwhile, I'm out there dying, because I'm still treading water, waiting in line. And, uh, you know, he looks down in the water, and then he says, I don't want to do it. And I said, well, then get off. And so he turns around to get back off the diving board, and there are all this, this, this huge line of other kids, much bigger, and they're like, go on, jump, get off. So the peer pressure is such that he goes back out to the end of the board, and he's just terrifying. The whole body at this point is quivering, and he's looking down at me, and I said to him, son, you jump, and dad will catch you. And with those words, he shut his eyes tight, held his nose, and jumped. And thank God I caught him, because <laughs> he had never trusted me again. But he trusted me. Now, if I had given it another year, he'd have been, no way, Dad. But at that point, he trusted me. Children are trusting, and that's what God wants us to be. That's the essence of faith. The essence of faith is trusting God, knowing that he's been faithful in the past, therefore we can trust him for the future. But what Jesus is really talking about in this particular context is not just the trusting nature or the teachable nature of children, it is the humble nature of children. Because the question, of course, is who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus brings a child into their midst and he says, you have to become like this. Children are humble. When they're young, they're not vying for position. Now, as time goes by, they will do that. They get to middle school and that's all they do. But when they're young, they're not vying for position, and they're not particularly concerned for social status. My wife teaches preschool out at the O'Quinn School on James Island. And every now and then, I'll go out to pick her up and take her to lunch. And I, I watch the children playing, and it's really amazing. Children are not concerned with the color of another child's skin. You know, they may get into an argument. I'm black, you're white. No, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm black, you're white. No, you're not. What do you mean I'm not? You're brown. Uh, th that's the argument that children will get into. They, they, they see the world in a totally different way than we do. And it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. I just want you to know that that's not black, that's brown. And they're not the least bit concerned about where your background is, what kind of car your parents drive. They're not concerned about what shoes you're wearing. They're not concerned about how much money your dad makes. They're not concerned about any of that, are they? It's only as time goes by that we begin to notice what neighborhoods people live in or what types of automobiles they drive or what particular school they may go to. But when you're little children, you're not the least bit concerned about that, are you? Little children will play with anybody. And when Jesus says, you need to become like a little child, this is what he means. You know, most of us spend our whole lives trying to present an image to the world, don't we? You know, it's an interesting word. The word that is translated as hypocrite in the Bible is the word pokrotos. And what it really means is to wear a mask. That's what it means. To, to be a hypocrite is one who wears a mask. And the Greek word for not wearing a mask is anupokritos, you take the mask off. Well, I'll be honest with you, as adults, isn't it true that most of us spend our whole lives wearing a mask? Trying to present an image to the world so that other people really don't see what's behind the screen. <coughs> Children don't do that. They're not the least bit concerned. They have taken the mask off. 
It's really an image from the Greek theater, by the way. In the Greek theater, the way you knew it was a comedy or a tragedy is the characters would come on the stage and they would wear a mask depicting whether they were a comic figure or a tragic figure. And that's the way you and I live our lives if we're honest with ourselves. But children are anupokritos. They take that mask off. And that's what Jesus is saying. He said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to become like this little child. Now, it was a powerful illustration, a vivid illustration, but it's a striking illustration for a number of reasons. First of all, you'll notice that what Jesus does by bringing that child in is he actually changes the nature of the disciples' question. What was their question? Who will be great in the kingdom of God? Who is the greatest when you come into your kingdom? How does Jesus respond? Look at it. He says, truly I say to you, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. They're concerned about being great in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, if you don't become humble, trusting, teachable, like these children, you don't need to worry about being great in the kingdom of God. You're not even going to get into the kingdom of God. Now, that is an entirely different category of question. And what is interesting is that Jesus is in the habit of doing this sort of thing. This is not the only time we find him doing something like that. Keep your finger there in Matthew for just a moment and turn to Luke chapter 13. Here we have a group of people coming to Jesus with a question about suffering, about natural evil. There are two tragedies that have occurred, and the people are coming to Jesus with some desire for insight. Chapter 13, verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Apparently what was happening here is that there must have been a group of Galileans who had run afoul of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, the same Pontius Pilate before whom Jesus would stand trial. It may have been a messianic uprising, which was not uncommon in those days, and a lot of those things would take place, or they would at least have their genesis up there in Galilee. And apparently Pontius Pilate decided to clamp down hard on these people, and he had them put to death. But what is interesting, and particularly tragic, and shocking to the people, was that he had them slaughtered while they were actually in the act of worshiping. That is what is meant by the phrase, he mingled their blood with those of their sacrifices. So it'd be like the government coming into church and not just rounding people up and taking them out, but slaughtering them in the midst of worship. So that was what was happening there in that passage, and the people were deeply disturbed by that. And so they come to Jesus and they say, what's happening here? If God is sovereign, if, if God is in control of all of this, why in the world is he allowing this sort of thing to happen? Now, you would expect Jesus to give some deep theological or philosophical response, but he answered them, verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? See, that was the assumption. These people must have done something terrible in order to die, or God is not in control. But Jesus changes the question. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is saying, you're asking the wrong question. You want to know why bad things happen to good people. The real question is, why haven't bad things happened to you? And therefore, rather than worrying about other people, you really ought to be concerned about yourself and your own spiritual health and well-being. See how Jesus turns the question? And that is exactly what he is doing here with the disciples. He said, you're so concerned about being great in the kingdom of God. He said, if you looked within yourselves, you would realize you ought to be concerned about something much more basic, whether or not you're even going to get into the kingdom of God. 
The question is not about greatness, Jesus says. The question is about fitness for the kingdom of God. That's a very different shift. Here's another reason why this particular illustration is striking. Not only because Jesus turns the question on the disciples, but in so doing, He reminds them that in order to become like little children, something supernatural is required. What is required is a conversion. Notice that He says, unless you turn and become like little children. That is to say, unless you are transformed and become like little children, you can never enter the kingdom of God. Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 31 says, Turn me, O Lord, and I shall be turned. That's Jeremiah's way of acknowledging the fact that he has no power in and of himself to help himself. The only way that he is going to be turned, the only way that his heart, which has been inclined toward the world and sin, is going to be inclined toward God is if God does something in his life and turns him. That, in essence, is exactly what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he said, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is required is something supernatural, a transformation, a renewal, a new birth. So Jesus is saying to these men, look, don't be concerned about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. Be concerned about getting into the kingdom of God. And the only way you can get into the kingdom of God is if you become like a child. And the only way you can become like a child in humility is if you have a radical conversion. Something supernatural happens to you, a rebirth. And once that happens, Jesus says, then not only will you have a change of mind, you will have a change of attitude, a change of heart as well. That's when you will begin to see yourselves in the light of eternity. That's how Jean Valjean saw himself, we're told. Eventually, he saw himself in the light of eternity. Here's how Paul put it in Romans chapter 12. He says, For the, by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself or herself more highly than you ought, but to think of yourselves with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. See, if you recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that the only way you can enter the kingdom of God is if you become like a child and become humble, and let's be honest, most of us are not. Now, we may feign humility, some of us are really good at that. But most of us have a tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And the only way that that attitude changes... Now, you may not think of yourself as, as the greatest, but I'll bet you 10 to 1 that there is somebody that you can think of in which you think to yourself, well, I'm better than her, or I'm better than him. I may not be the greatest, but I'm sure better than them. And Paul says you ought not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. Now, it may be that you are endowed with a great mind and you've got a great intellect. And it may be that you can get higher SAT scores or GRE scores than somebody else. But we are talking about spiritual matters here. We're not talking about the intellect. We're talking about the heart. We're talking about the spirit. And when it comes to that, we of all people, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, ought to be a people of humility. And that's what Jesus was trying to get at. Now, at this point, Jesus makes a segue. It's, it's somewhat difficult to understand why he does this at first. But what he says is this in verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of of the sea. Jesus is saying, once you become like a little child, woe to those who would seek to defile this little child. Now, at this point, Jesus, in verse 5, is not talking about the little boy that he put in his midst. Now he's talking about those who become like little children, 
those who've had a conversion, those who are now seeing themselves aright and have humbled themselves, and they're not thinking of themselves more highly than they ought, Jesus is saying they are going to be subject to persecution from the world. And why is that? It's because, he said, humility is not highly prized in our culture. It wasn't highly prized in Jesus' culture. Now, we say we like humble people. I think oftentimes we say we like humble people, either one, because they're not a threat to us, or number two, we know we should like humble people. But that's not the way most of us lived our lives. We don't live lives of humility. We are oftentimes trying to promote ourselves. That's one of the reasons why we wear that mask. Here's how Vince Lombardi, the famous football coach, put it. He said, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. And oftentimes that's the way we think, isn't it? Winning isn't everything. Winning is the only thing. It's the only thing that matters. And so we're always striving to get to the top of our career, the top of our game. The only way we can look back over the course of our life and say it's been worth living is if we have made it to the top, if we have achieved all our goals. But if you humble yourself and you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, if you humble yourself and you see yourself not as being number one, but as being last, being the servant of all, that is not something that is highly prized by the world. That's one of the reasons why Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount are so countercultural. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 18 again, and I want you to just turn back to Matthew chapter 5 for just a moment. Now, it's been some time since we were in the Sermon on the Mount, but the Beatitudes are just so powerful. And Jesus opened His mouth and He taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, what does it mean? It is to recognize that you have nothing of value to offer to God. Nothing in my hand I bring, the old hymn says. Simply to the cross I cling. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, He doesn't mean poor, physically poor. He says the poor in spirit. You don't think highly of yourself. Well, most of us have been spending our whole lives promoting self, not having a poverty of spirit. He goes on to say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There are many things to mourn for, but what Jesus is referring to here is mourn for our sins. This is one of the reasons why in the liturgy on Sunday, and it's one of the reasons I like the right one liturgy over and against the right two liturgy, right two liturgy sort of strikes me as Christianity light, but I love right one. Because right one says we acknowledge and we what? Bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Now there are a number of things that are very important there. First of all, it's one thing to acknowledge, it's another thing to bewail. There's a difference between the two. You might Acknowledge the fact that you've done something wrong, but you're not necessarily sorry for having done it. It is to acknowledge and bewail it. And it's not just acknowledging and bewail your sins. It's acknowledging and bewailing your manifold sins and your what? Your wickedness. Now, there's an order there. We tend to think that we're wicked because we sin. But that's not the way the prayer book puts it. The prayer book says we sin because we're what? Wicked. It's not what comes into a man from the outside that defiles him, Jesus said. It is what comes out of a man that has a tendency to defile him. The problem is not out there in the world. The problem is here. The world is wicked, but the world is wicked because wicked people are in it. It is because you and I as human beings have failed to fulfill the promise that was made to Adam to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of creation. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, who mourn their sins. They not only acknowledge that I've messed up, they are really sorry for it. Blessed are the meek, he says, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, the only thing the meek inherit is the dirt. They don't inherit the earth. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. That is the nature of the kingdom of God. And that is so counter to everything that our world teaches. Jesus takes the values of this world and he turns them upside down. We think that the world is right side up. Actually, it's the world that is upside down. Christians are called to live right side up. Now, if you're Living in an upside-down world, everybody else thinks you're the one that's upside-down. But actually, it's just the opposite. And that's what Jesus is trying to convey. And that's why Jesus, having said how terrible it would be to have one of these little children who's placed themselves humbly before God, willing to be a servant of all, how terrible it is, he said, then to somehow try to defile that little child. And that's why Jesus gives this severe warning. He said, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We would say that to defile a little child, when we hear about that sort of thing in the news, somebody taking advantage of a little child sexually or any other way, we just absolutely get furious. Well, Jesus said God gets just as furious when people in the world try to defile his little children, those who have humbled themselves, who've been converted and have become like little children in the faith. God gets angry with that as well. And he says it would be better for them, the people who are leading those ones astray, that a millstone be wrapped around their neck and they be cast into the depths of the sea. This is a severe warning to two people, two classes of people. First of all, to unbelievers who make it their intention to defile Christians. And there are people out there in the world. When I was in college and university, there was a young girl. She was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, she became a Christian, and in becoming a Christian, um, she decided to break off relationships with some of her old friends. Uh, she stopped going to some of the places that she used to go. She, she really wanted to make a new start. But there were actually a group, a group of boys and girls in our dorm that made it their goal to disrupt her, that made it their goal to tempt her to do all of the things that she knew in her new life in Christ she shouldn't do. Somehow they made her their project and felt that if they could somehow disrupt her, they had won a great victory. There are people like that out in the world, that they think that they can somehow get a Christian to fall, to somehow live in a way that is not in conformity with their newfound faith, they have won a victory. And this warning is against those. But this warning is also against a second class of people. It's a warning against those who claim to be believers, but who do not act like believers. And as a consequence, bring disrepute upon the faith. Now, we don't have time to go into that today, but that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12 when he speaks to the Jews. He said, you've been given all kinds of advantages. You've been given the prophets. You've been given the law. You've been given the promises. But you are living in such a way that you are actually causing the Gentiles to sin. You know how this works. When Christians talk the talk, but they don't what? Walk the walk. This is one of the things that many young people today, the millennial generation says, is so difficult for them about Christians. Christians say one thing, but they live a completely different way. And if you think about it, it it's true. And it's not just true of the liberal churches, by the way. It's also true of the conservative evangelical churches. Some evangelicals today are more worldly than any other people. 
And if we're like that, what we're actually doing is causing those who are seeking to understand the faith to sin because they're not getting a realistic picture. And so Jesus is warning against that sort of thing. He's saying it would be better that a millstone, have you ever seen a millstone? It's like an anvil. It's a big thing. It was wrapped around your neck and you were thrown into the depths of the sea. Now that is a severe warning, especially coming as it does from Jesus. Why so severe? It's a severe offense, therefore it gets a serious warning, serious consequence, because this is a serious subject. The reason why we find Jesus' words to be particularly harsh, it would be better for you if you've ever caused another Christian to sin. It would be better that a millstone was put around your neck and you were thrown into the depths of the sea. The reason why we think that is harsh is because we don't think sin is as serious as God does. That's the bottom line. We have a tendency to think that sin is a minor matter. Now, we know it's not perfect. We know that we're not perfect. We know that that sin is not something that we should be engaged in, but it can't be as bad as all that. I have a little book in my library. I will recommend it to you. It's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin. It was written by Professor uh, Cornelius Planiga. Uh, he was a professor for many years at Calvin College out in Michigan. And it's a wonderful little book, and it's about sin and what has happened to sin in our culture. And at the beginning of that book, he says this. He says, in this book, I am trying to retrieve an old awareness that has slipped and changed in recent decades. He said, the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it translate, acknowledged and bewailed. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he should still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might worry that this sin threatened her very salvation. He says, at one time, the accusation, you have sinned, still had the power to jolt people so that Catholics lined up to confess their sins to the priest and Protestant preachers rose up to confess our sins and they did it regularly. He said, but alas, the shadow has dimmed and nowadays the accusation, you have sinned, is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. Bill Warlick, you old sinner. You just happen to be in the front row, sorry. <laughs> but that's how we do it. Some years ago, I went to the Outback Steakhouse, and they had a dessert on the menu called Sydney's Sinfully Delicious Sunday. It was so good, it was what? Sinful. See how we have redefined the terms today? We've turned sin into a laughing matter. But we need to understand that to God this is no laughing matter. It is deadly serious. Now you may be wondering to yourself, well, what exactly is sin? I mean, I hear the preacher talking about sin all the time, but I'm not really sure what sin is. Is, is going through the red light a sin? Is getting a speeding ticket a sin? If it is, I'm the foremost of offenders. Let me just tell you right now. What is it to sin? Here's a very simple definition of sin. If you want to know what it is, write it down. Sin is a failure to do anything that God commands. And it is doing anything that God forbids. It's as simple as that. Sin is a failure to do anything that God commands, and it is doing anything that God forbids. Because God is the ultimate standard or arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. It's not the culture. My goodness, the culture is always a moving target. The vagaries and fashions of the time are always changing. We recognize that. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has to be the ultimate arbiter of what is right and wrong. And so to sin is to do whatever He forbids or to fail to do whatever He commands. These are called sins of omission and sins of commission. 
The sins of commission are doing those things that God has forbidden. The sins of omission are failing to do those things that He commands. Like love your neighbor. That's what sin is. And as I said, it is a deadly serious matter. That's why Jesus speaks in the way that He does. Romans chapter 6 says for that the wages of sin is death. Now, that, that is not just physical death, although it is that, but it is spiritual death. It, it is a separation from God. It is a loss of all hope. Now, you say, well, how much sin is deadly? Well, that's like asking, how rotten is rotten meat? I mean, really. If, if I put a hamburger before you and I say to you, now, I, in the interest of full disclosure, i got to tell you, um, this hamburger's got a little bit of rotten meat on it. But don't worry about it. I think I've cut that part out. Are you still willing to eat it? Uh, I've used this illustration before. Um, some years ago, there was a, um, a batch of canned vichyssoise soup uh, that had to be recalled because it had botulism. Now, botulism is deadly. Now, here's the question. How much botulism has to be in your can before you'll refuse to eat it? See, a little bit is capable of killing you. And the same is true when it comes to sin. There's no such thing as a little white lie, my friends. The smallest amount of sin is capable of killing you. And the Bible said all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The reason why Jesus speaks in the way that he does here is because this is a deadly, serious matter. And if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, the Bible says, and the truth is not in you. So you're actually defaming God. And that's why Jesus says this is deadly serious. He came into the world to save sinners. He is deeply concerned for you. And so what he is saying is, sin is such a serious matter, it requires drastic action. This is not a little thing, it is a major thing. That's like saying, well, I've got a little bit of cancer, it's down here in my foot, but it's in my foot, I'm not worried about it, I won't worry about it until it gets to my heart. If you've got a little bit of cancer, the best thing to do is what? Cut it out. And that's what Jesus says in this passage. He says, woe! To the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom they come. For if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, well, tear it out and throw it away. Better to go into eternal life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, of course... Jesus is not advocating, hopefully you understand this, any kind of self-mutilation. It's just Jewish hyperbole. It is an attempt to exaggerate in order to make the point that if there is something that is causing you to stumble in your life into sin, and because sin is a deadly serious matter, get rid of it. If there are certain kinds of suggestive movies, get rid of them. Don't go to them. If there are certain kind of books you ought not to read, don't read them. If there are certain places that you know you ought not to go, don't go there. That's what Jesus is saying. Sin is a serious matter. We need to take it seriously. And those who tempt other people and seek to bring down his little children, well, woe to them. This is a serious, serious matter. When possible, what does Jesus say? Flee it. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. Timothy says it in chapter 2 of his second letter. Paul says, flee these things. If it's possible, flee it. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says, cut it off. Get rid of it. Flee it. That's how we're supposed to deal with temptation. We are not supposed to say, well, I'll just sort of muscle through. The reality is, my friends, you and I are not capable of withstanding the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all three of them come at us oftentimes simultaneously. So we're supposed to flee. Whenever possible, we are to flee. Now, there are those moments when it is not possible to flee. 
And we'll get to those in a minute. But I want to get to this subject of fleeing for just one more minute and this subject of the evil day. The Bible speaks of the evil day. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 6. In that same chapter where he talks about putting on the full armor of God, taking on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit so that you can withstand on the evil day. Now, I've used this illustration before. You've heard me talk about the evil day before, but it's really important you understand what it is. The evil day is when your inclinations and opportunity meet. Now, there are times in our lives when we are tempted to sin. We even have a desire to sin, but we don't have the opportunity. Then there are those other times in our lives when we have the opportunity to sin, but we just don't have the desire to sin. The evil day is when your opportunity and your desire meet. And when the opportunity and the desire meet, you cannot resist. That is why the Scripture says, flee it. Flee it. Because otherwise you are putting yourself for no purpose into harm's way. Now, unfortunately, there are those times and this is becoming more and more the case, I think, with social media and with the Internet and so forth, it becomes harder and harder to flee temptation. Temptation is coming at us almost continuously and from every quarter. What do you do in those moments when it's not possible? When you're just walking down the street or, or you're looking on, on a website for something very innocuous and all of a sudden something pops up and all there it is right in front of your face. What do you do in situations like that? James tells us that we are to submit ourselves to God, to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. There's an order there. You submit yourself first to God. When the temptation comes, your first response is not, oh, what am I going to do? Your first response should be, Lord, what are we going to do? You submit yourself to God, and then on the basis of His grace and strength, you resist the devil and the promises that he will flee from you. Paul reminds us that there is no temptation that you have ever faced that has not already been faced by somebody else. You've never faced a temptation in your life that is not common to mankind. Somebody else has also fought, faced it and dealt with it. Which is one of the reasons why Christian fellowship is so important. There is safety in numbers, my friends. If you are trying to live your Christian life in isolation from everyone else, you are subject to attack. The best thing you can do is surround yourself by Christian friends who perhaps have dealt with this before and can help you through it as well. And here's the third thing. When temptation comes at you and it's not possible to flee it, it is to remember that Christ understands. The author of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but we have a great high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are. There is one who can give you the power, the wherewithal, to overcome. But it is a deadly, serious matter. And, and I know it's one o'clock, We are responsible. That's the other thing that Jesus says. And I'll leave you with this thought. Look again at today's passage, at verse 7, where the Lord says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptation comes. But woe to the one by whom that temptation comes. When Jesus says... Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It is necessary for temptations to come. That is Jesus being a realist. He's saying temptations are going to come. You live in a fallen world. There's no escaping it, folks. You know, there were those in the early days of the church who in an attempt to escape the world went out and lived in the desert. They became known as the Desert Fathers. Some of them actually lived on pillars in the middle of the desert. One of them was called Simon of Stylitis. He wanted to escape the world. And he thought, well, if I just go out and live in the desert by myself on the top of a, a pillar, I'll be safe. 
And people heard about it and they thought, what kind of a crank would do that? And all of a sudden people were flocking out to see Simon of Stylitus. What kind of a person would live out in the desert on the top of a pillar? And he discovered that he had tried to flee the world and the world followed him. And the same is true for you and me. You can't escape it, Jesus is saying. The temptation is going to come. But that doesn't mean that because the temptations come, you and I are therefore not responsible for what we do. We live in an age where we do not want to be responsible for our own actions. Many people don't want to be responsible for their own actions. I am the way I am. Why? Well, because of my DNA. Or I'm the way I am because of my environment. And Jesus makes it very clear. Your environment may impact you to some degree. You may have a genetic disposition toward certain things, but to suggest that you are somehow slaves to these, it simply is not true. Human beings have been given free will. We are the only creatures that have the ability to rise above an animal instinct and to be better than we are. And so Jesus says that's what we are called to do. If you're finding yourself struggling in this, if you're finding yourself not being able to humble yourself and be trusting in God, it may be that what you need is that conversion. And if you have been converted, then your attitude should be one of humility. It is to recognize that you're a broken and fallen sinner. You're no better than anybody else, but you've been redeemed at countless cost. And your desire is not to bring others down, but to build others up. That's what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. Now, here's the question. Did the disciples ever get it? We'll come back next week and we'll find out if they did. <laughs> Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We thank you for these words that Jesus speaks to us. They are words that we all desperately need to hear. Grant us the grace, Lord, to become like little children, to see ourselves as you see us, but yet to know that we are loved beyond measure and that you paid the price that we might be renewed, that we may be transformed, that we might be reborn. Grant us the grace to turn and become like little children, humble, trusting, teachable, that we may be used of you for your glory and honor. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.